This podcast is for adults 21 years of age or older. We talk about cannabis history and advertise cannabis products. If you're not 21, come back when you are. Spoke Media. Hey, how's it going, folks? It's Abdullah. And Bean. And welcome back to another episode of Great Moments in Weed History. On this podcast, Bean and I, who are both cannabis journalists and media makers, go over one of the more fascinating points in the long, long history of human beings and cannabis. Isn't that right, Bean? That is exactly what we do. So I have no prior knowledge of the story that Bean's about to tell me. I'm just going to chime in with my general knowledge about cannabis. We're going to smoke some weed, and we're going to hear an amazing story. So, Bean, what do you got for us today? I got a story for you about one of the most legendary weed crews of all time, Hmm. and I think it's going in a direction that you're not going to expect. Wow. So we've had a story about a weed crew before, of course, the Waldos, who uh, invented 420. But this is a different weed crew, huh? Similar time period. Interesting. Different weed crew. And uh, it spawned one of the most well-known people on the planet. Interesting. Well, my mind is running wild with anticipation. If only there was something that would calm me down and stimulate me at the same time. Yeah, well, that's why we got the weed smoking studio rider. That's right. Oh, my God. It is so good to be in a professional studio that lets us smoke weed in it. Shout out to Gold Diggers. Yeah, and as I remind you in every episode of Great Moments in Weed History, if you're listening along at home, you might as well be smoking along at home. If you're not rolled up or packed up or ready to go, hit pause now, do what you do, and and we'll be here when you get back. We are about to hotbox this MFR. (laughs) <laughs> and then I think it might be time for another great moment in weed history. Smoke media. So, Bean, I've got this J in progress in front of me. Why don't you give us the quick rundown on what our story today is going to cover? The subject of today's great moment in weed history was born in Hawaii in 1961, if you believe the official story. Oh, born in Hawaii in 1961, part of a famous weed crew. Man, who was born in Hawaii in 1961? That was if you believe the official story. Hmm. You want me to go on? Yeah, yeah, please go on. I don't have any solid guesses yet. All right. His mother was a white lady from Wichita, Kansas, studying to be an anthropologist. His father... <gasps> hmm? <You> ready? <gasps> yeah. Guess... It's Barack Obama. (laughs) Fuck yeah. Yes, dude. Okay, I am so, so stoked. So as many people know, Barack Obama has written in his own autobiography that he did use cannabis back in the day. And of course, Hawaii is one of the cannabis places in America. Uh, But I don't know the deep details of this story. I've read uh, Dreams from My Father. But besides that, I don't know very much about it. 
I don't know much about Obama's cannabis history. Yeah, it is interesting. And and so in 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 his autobiography, you know, he talks about smoking uh weed and uh you Chum, know, that, I think he calls it. Yeah. Uh but he doesn't get into the details. It's not how you or I would write about our weed smoking past. It's somebody who clearly has in mind they're going to run for president at some point and uh you know, he doesn't diss weed too hard, but he doesn't uh endorse it, I guess. Endorse right? it. But But you've pierced through the veil, haven't you, Bean? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm not a birther. <laughs> I don't even think he was born. I don't think anyone was born. You know what yeah. I mean? I think we were all just kind of like, you know, descended from stardust, you know? Everybody's opinion is equally valid and facts don't matter. So, <laughs> yeah, I don't. that's right. It's a post-fact <laughs> world that we're living in. Uh, Great Moments of Weed History is the final, the last bastion of true history. And you've never heard it anywhere before. You're never going to hear it anywhere else. And I assume you're listening to this show in some kind of a bunker. And a quick shout out to our sponsor, uh, Bunker Delivery, the only <laughs> place that will deliver essentials, food, weed, water yeah. to your bunker. Post bunks. Post bunks. <laughs> Bunk mates. Bunk mates. Bunk mates is a whole different app. <laughs> That's the dating app. Yeah. Bunk mates. <laughs> Find your bunk mate today. Okay, should we get back in the story? Yeah, man, I, I can't wait to hear. Okay, so his mother was a white lady from Wichita, Kansas, studying to be an anthropologist. His father was a foreign exchange student from Kenya studying economics. The couple met in a Russian language class at the University of Hawaii and married six months before Obama was born. And then they divorced before his fourth birthday. A year after uh, Obama's parents divorced, his uh, mother remarries, this time to a foreign exchange student studying geography. Right. This, so this is the Indonesian guy, right, if I'm not mistaken. And that's why uh, Barack Obama ends up spending some of his life in Southeast Asia, which is, you know, it, it feels really close to my heart because I also am an American kid who grew up in Southeast Asia so when I read that part of his book, I was like, oh, that's so cool. Another person with that sort of like cultural perspective or whatever. Yeah. Were there, were there aspects of that that really connected with you? Like that, you know, you yeah. recognized his story in your own? Yeah. You know what? Like definitely the, the book added a lot of depth to my understanding of it. But, you know, the moment that comes to mind in terms of, uh, you know, relating to Barack Obama, right? Uh, is really when he gave that speech at the DNC. To defy the odds, the hope of a skinny kid with a funny name who believes that America has a place for him too. And I seriously, I still get choked up every time I think about it because I'm a skinny kid with a funny name and I thought the same thing about America and I always think about that speech and, you know, it just, it really is one of those things that makes me feel all this hope I don't know. It just makes me feel good, you know? It was that same speech where he famously said, you know, there's no red America, there's no blue America. Yeah, he did. And... and he was clearly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> he could not see into the future. <laughs> so this J is rolled up. Uh, may I light this thing? I think you must. All mm. right. While you, uh, while you settle in, mm -hmm. I'm going to settle us into this story a little bit because we're getting to the good shit. Yeah, let's keep going. Okay, so his mother uh, remarries. Uh foreign exchange student studying geography. When her new husband's visa ran out, uh, she followed him to his home country of Indonesia because he's got uh, visa problems. And this is where Barack Obama grows up as a kid for a little bit. Yeah, so they live there 
from when he was 6 to 10. So 1971, he returns. He's only 10. He returns to Honolulu, and he's living with his maternal grandparents. And they enroll him at an upscale private college prep academy, uh, which he attended on a scholarship from fifth grade until he graduated from high school in 1979. Okay, gotcha. So he finishes high school in Hawaii. He finishes high school in Hawaii, and he's at this, like, really prepped out, very expensive school on scholarship. And that's, you know, he is this figure who bridges worlds. And that's another kind of East and West, uh, his parental background, but also he's somebody who really is not of much means and his family is, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, you wouldn't say they were in poverty, but you would certainly say that they were probably not quite middle class. Um, But he is very bright and he gets this scholarship. So that's another really formative part of him. And this is also where he joined a gang. Right. Okay. So definitely heard some stories about this. You know, one of my favorite depictions of this is a Key and Peele sketch. Trust me, I think that this party can be the most inspirational party this campus has ever seen. Is that coming to me? And just... Grab that. Mm. Some righteous bud. And quick uh, shout out to Jordan Peele, friend of the podcast. Yeah, and, seriously. Uh, anytime, bro. Anytime you want to come on the show, tell us about the first time you smoked weed. We are down. So while at school, at this up, upper class school, Obama joined a gang. It was called... The Choom Gang. It was called the Choom Gang. And according to close friend and fellow member, and I'm going to say a friend of the podcast, uh, Tom Topolinsky. We had these sleepovers where we'd party with the Choom Gang. Um, Choom meaning um, indulge in um, Pakololo. A local slang for cannabis. So that kind of became our symbol of our, our friendship. But clearly, we weren't a gang. We, we were a family. We weren't a gang. We were a family. Oh, yeah. No, that's, that's really sweet. And I think it really speaks to the bonding power of cannabis, man. I mean, we've talked about this on the show before. We've both experienced this. Like, our best friendships, maybe all our friendships, like, throughout <laughs> our lives, are cannabis-centered somehow. You know what I mean? That It's like, it's this lubricant. And when cannabis is something that's illegal or, you know, you do in the shadows a little bit, it fosters that little group vibe even more, you know? Yeah, you might call it a gang. Not exactly a gang, but (laughs) Choom is definitely involved. Much more Choom than gang. They're all about the Choom, and they're not really a gang. Uh, But it's this group that's full of in-jokes and full of adventure and full of like this zest for life Mm. and openness and they're really into pickup basketball like that's one of their things yeah obama loves basketball that's right yeah uh anytime man you you got nine guys and you and you need one more i'm better than i look obama i got a decent little jump (laughs) shot so we were hearing from uh esteemed chum gang member tom topolinski he's saying you know telling us what pakalolo is And in the course of, so I said I was Googling just this morning to try to hear somebody say it, Mm -hmm. and I found a Don Ho song, and perhaps our cool new crew at Spoke can splice some of this in for us. And it's a funny song, and it's about actually getting your plants ripped off. Stand 
And it may, it reminded me of your of of your piece. I just want my big bag of weed back. Ah, the one that started it all. The the piece that started my weed career was a cover of a Don Ho song. <laughs> you owe him royalties. <laughs> yeah. Shh. <laughs> uh, friend of the podcast in memoriam. Yeah, uh, Don, Don Ho's Ho. spirit. You're welcome on our show anytime, and are perhaps here right now. Who knows? Uh, but yeah, it's a funny song. Getting back to our main, main character. Yeah. The true story of the Choom Gang first came to light in journalist David Moranis, friend of the podcast. <laughs> uh, his 2012 book was called Barack Obama, The Story. And it's also in his own memoirs. Uh, but in Dreams from My Father... Obama makes it out like he's like hanging out with a group of misbegotten ne'er do wells, uh, mm-hmm. what he called, quote, the club of disaffection. But in fact, according to this other book, which was very well researched and I relied a lot on it for this episode. So this is David uh, Moranis writing Most members of the Chum gang were decent students and athletes who went on to be successful and productive lawyers, writers, and businessmen, and president. Oh, shit, spoiler. (laughs) (laughs) One notable exception uh, was Ray, the group's pot dealer, who would years later uh, be killed by a scorned gay lover armed with a ball-peen hammer. Oh, geez. Yeah. That is fucking rough. But, you know, the fact that the rest of them actually grew up to be gainful members of society. I mean, I I think that's so true. It's a total stereotype that attributes cannabis use to just the burnout kids because more kids than you think have used cannabis, you know? Like, the the ones who end up doing things with their lives, uh, you know, may have used it. You know, like, it's like, it's not so exclusive that, like, burnout smoke cannabis and cannabis is loved by burnouts. Everybody smokes weed, and as you get older, you start to realize that. And I also think, you know, the other way to look at it is people with a lot of trauma in their life are going to look to self-medicate that. Mm. Weed's actually a really good thing for treating some of that trauma, but people with trauma in their lives also have more difficult lives. Yeah. And and make mistakes and, you know, have harder outcomes because yeah. of that trauma. So when you lay those two data points over each other, it's easy to think like, oh, man, particularly if you're not a part of the culture and particularly with all the propaganda mm-hmm. and all the bullshit science, it, it, it's easy to kind of make that association one way. Right. Oh, you smoke weed and you're going to get into all these bad outcomes. Yeah. Wow. That is a really interesting point, actually, Bean, to think about that. It's like there's a lot of things with cannabis that it's like kind of a chicken or egg situation, uh, you know, and the sort of forces that are more anti-cannabis in the world are always, you know, going to draw that line and be like, oh, cannabis caused this. But you don't realize it's like, you know, like that makes me think of the correlation between cannabis use and schizophrenia. You know, it's like someone with that mental illness might be more likely to self-medicate using cannabis, but they draw a correlation the other way. And they say, oh, well, you know, people who have schizophrenia smoke cannabis, cannabis must be causing the schizophrenia or like, you know what I mean? Making it more likely or something. It's bullshit. Yeah, one one little adventure I had between season one and season two was I went on the uh, Tucker Carlson program. 
David Beanstalk is the author of How to Smoke Pot Properly. <laughs> David, thank you very much for coming on. Bean went on Tucker Carlson and he held it down. Why should we legalize something that we know causes schizophrenia? Tucker, you know, you're the one on here repeating old lies, old distortions, debunked claims. The author of the book that you had on last week, many of the people in the studies that he cited have gone on Twitter to say you grossly misrepresented our findings. Okay, well, the National Academy of you, Medicine look, I'm report, not an expert in this. I'm the author to... said you misrepresent. You're not an expert, but you're supposed to do your job. Bean held it down. I'm so proud of you, Bean. Oh, thanks, Vance. But but that was what it was. It was this debate about schizophrenia. And what made it so worth it, it was all worth it, but what made it even more worth it is that Tucker Carlson said, Great moments in weed history. He said the name <laughs> of our show. You can look it up. We got to put that in a promo or something. <laughs> all right. Why don't, we, why don't we leave Tucker Carlson in the ashtray of history where he belongs? So anyhow, Barack Obama. Yes. So Obama and his friends, they used to get their weed from this guy, Ray. Uh, they hung out with him. They considered him an honorary Choom Gang member. Uh, he was a white hippie mainlander who worked at a place called Mamma Mia's Pizza Parlor, which sounds like it has disgusting pizza. <laughs> like, oh, why? All pizza has pineapple. Like pineapple and ham pizza. Oh, my God. Is that actually, it's like in, in Hawaii, if you just order a regular slice, do they give you a Hawaiian slice, you know? And it's served in a hollowed out pineapple. <laughs> and they just call it pizza. Like, I like the thing in Hawaii that all drinks are served in pineapple. <laughs> Like, literally, just, like, you go into, like, your kitchen cabinet and open it, it's just a bunch of hollowed-out pineapples instead of cups. What, what do you drink out of? <laughs> yeah, a cup, like a sucker. <laughs> they call it, like, it's like a New York cup, you know? Uh, so, uh, you know, when he's not working at Mamma Mia Pizza Parlor, this guy, Ray, uh, he lived not far from their school in a broken-down bus, parked in an abandoned warehouse. So it's like, that is the thing that frightens parents. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is what happens when you push weed into the shadows. Ray's like, I'd get a storefront on Main Street, but, you know, because of the laws, I got to work out of this warehouse. <laughs> and in a, in a broken-down bus. Uh, but, mm. you know, uh, in memoriam, Ray, friend of the podcast, shout out. He did, though, uh, keep them very well supplied with classic Hawaiian land race strains of the era, like mm. Maui Wowie, Kauai Electric, Punabud, mm. Kona Gold. So I have a couple of questions here. So like, what does this weed look like uh, back then? I'm always curious about like when we talk about these great moments of weed history, you know, it's like, what did weed, uh, you know, look like in Nigeria in the in the mm. 60s or 70s, right? It's like, so, so when you're talking about Hawaiian weed from this era, like, what does it look like, smell like? Yeah, like. You're, you're referring to the Felicuti episode. And that's an interesting aspect of bouncing around in history and, and locations. You know, you are always talking about these different strains. So in the 70s in Hawaii, mm -hmm. when I say land race, that means the weed that's like indigenous to Hawaii. Right. Uh, it hasn't been crossed with other kinds of weed. A single strain that's usually associated with a specific place. Mm -hmm. It's been bred so that you have like the best example of it, but right. it's not a cross. Whereas gotcha. your sour D's of the world are two strains or three strains or a long complicated lineage. This is like right. one thing. Um, they're pure sativa strains. Mm -hmm. They would grow really tall. Like spindly looking buds, right? 
spindly-looking buds. Sativas are known for being uplifting. Indica is sometimes called Indicouch. Um, and we're in big-time sativa world in Hawaii. These are like, if you talk, and if, if like me, and I think most people, you worked at High Times for like 15 years, <laughs> you talk to a lot of old heads who were smugglers in the 70s or growers yeah. or just deep into this culture. Um, the, the OGs are still alive, you know? And yeah. they talk about Maui Wowie and some of these strains with a real reverence. Yeah, and I'm sure a lot of people might remember Maui Wowie from that moment in Half Baked, of course, legendary <laughs> cannabis movie where Dave Chappelle breaks into the medical marijuana thing. It is a fantastic strain, Maui Wowie. If you have the opportunity to smoke some Maui Wowie, you should try the strain because it's still around and it's, you know, it's really good. We're at a little point now where in our story, we're getting to the to the real meat of the story. But what I'm about to tell you is one of Obama's earliest weed policies hmm. actually dates back to his days in the Choom Gang. But I thought we would skip ahead a little bit because we're going to have a little break and talk about his weed policies when he was president before we go back and see how the Chum Gang might have uh, influenced his thinking. And with some quotes of his, I, I can kind of take us through this. Oh, I love it. Okay, yeah, oh, let's, cool. uh, let's do this. Okay, so as a politician, Obama's evolution on weed played out in public and never quite put him out in front of the issue, but the results are obvious. You know, we're sitting here smoking weed in a legal state yeah. in a fucking recording studio. Mm -hmm. and, and he, he was, you know... He was the first president to be that supportive of weed. Uh, all right, let's hear these quotes. Okay. So in 2004, when he was running for the Senate, and I think this was the same year he gave the speech that you were referring to, mm -hmm. uh, he told students at Northwestern University, uh, The war on drugs has been an utter failure. Dot, dot, dot. But I'm not somebody who believes in uh, legalization. Uh, marijuana. Right. He's like, he really had that college crowd on the edge of their seats and <laughs> let him down pretty fucking hard. His, his evolution on it was like pretty slow. There was raids going on in Northern California under the Obama-led DEA or the, the, the DEA that was under Obama. But also, when I look back on it and think about it, it was such a different world, right? Like we've seen such change in the last few years. There was a time just in, I mean, 2010, where the prospect of legal cannabis in the United States was, we did not think we would see that in our lifetimes. You know, it's like, sure, you had medical cannabis in different places and that was growing and at its own pace, but it really did not seem like we would be where we are now. But at the times when he would release tidbits like that, like if he said something like, the drug war is a failure, I would be like, I'm going to ignore everything else he said in that speech and just focus on that because the president just admitted that the drug war is a failure. So at the time, it was so exciting, but he was kind of, you know, there was definitely things that he allowed to go on that are atrocious. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it can't and shouldn't be ignored. And being a part of this weed community gives you a good perspective to, to look at like all these political divides mm -hmm. and say, well, wait, you are both fucking wrong about this thing that's so important to me and is so obviously wrong, weed prohibition, that I can be skeptical about politics and politicians and mm. movements that I'm also aligned with. 
when you start to get this tribalism, yeah. that's dangerous territory. It's very true. And I think that the good thing about Obama is that he showed change in himself. You know, he might not have started out in exactly where we wanted him to as weed people, but he ended up a lot closer to it than I think anyone would have guessed, you know? Yeah, and I think he's playing a long game. Yeah. You know, so let's... Uh, yeah, let's by, keep going. So by 2006... This is when he says, quite famously, I inhaled frequently. That was the point. <laughs> yeah, dude. So, I mean, that's crazy. That's like when uh, a 2000s rap song references like an early 90s rap song <laughs> and it kind of like flips it on its head a little bit. I experimented with marijuana a time or two. And I inhaled frequently. That was the point. By 2012, and now he's president, 2006, you know, he's still a senator. Colorado and Washington passed the uh, first adult use legalization laws. We were both there. Yeah, dude, wow. What a day. January 1st. 2013. Have your IDs ready! It's a Wild West weed rush. Colorado's Amendment 64 was passed on November 6th, 2012. President Obama clarifying his recent comments, the pot is no more dangerous than alcohol. Comments coming right in the middle of a national debate sparked by the recent legalization of marijuana in Colorado and Washington. I remember it was flurrying in Denver, Colorado. Bean and I met up at 3D Discreet at 7 in the morning, right? Good day. It was beautiful. <laughs> uh, it was a special day. And so and so Obama, of course, needs to react to this. Yeah. They played it pretty tight-lipped before the election in terms of how they were going to react if it passed. Same mm-hmm. thing. Didn't come out against it, didn't come out for it, mm-hmm. and didn't give any indication of whether they were going to let this stand, man. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so after the election, uh, Barbara Walters... Sure, friend of the podcast, why not? Yeah. Uh, Asks him about it, and and Obama says... It does not make sense from a prioritization point of view for us to focus on recreational drug users in a state that has already said that under state law that's legal. So this was the beginning of the seriously let the states decide kind of thing. Because obviously that was a sticking point with California for the previous 15 years because it was a Wild West sort of rule. It was like, yeah, we can have medical weed, but anyone can get a prescription or whatever. Colorado, on the other hand, had had like a really well-regulated, like lockdown, super tight medical program, right? Or at least the tightest one that had existed in the U.S. so far. So when they built this rec system on top of it and everyone voted it in, it's a purple state, you know, like, and cannabis is starting to become a nonpartisan issue, you know, at this time. It's like, I mean, what other move is there for the sitting president? You know what I mean? Like, you can't really say otherwise. You can't be like, no, this is totally a backdoor to, you know, a, a black market or whatever. It's not. It's the opposite. Know? Yeah, exactly. And, and the thing is, in that election in 2012, Obama was up for re-election. Mm-hmm. He, spoiler alert, he won. Yeah, what? Uh, <laughs> wow, I'm learning so oh, much. Holy cow. <laughs> and, um, but he also won the state of Colorado, mm-hmm. but weed legalization got way more votes than him in Colorado. Right, and that that ballot was, uh, like, it was voted on same when day. Obama was the same day. Yeah. Right, 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 same election. Wow, dude, that's crazy. This is Obama to the New Yorker. As has been well documented, I smoked pot as a kid, and I view it as a bad habit and a vice, 
but I don't think it is more dangerous than alcohol. And then here's where he really comes into it. Middle-class kids don't get locked up for smoking pot, Mm. and poor kids do, and African-American kids and Latino kids are more likely to be poor and less likely to have the resources and the support to avoid unduly harsh penalties. We should not be locking up kids or individual users for long stretches of jail time when some of the folks who are writing those laws have probably done the same thing. Man, I remember when... He said this, I I read this quote and I got choked up because I couldn't believe that it was being said. Even with the caveats, he's saying, you know, that we shouldn't lock up people for just using or possessing small amounts, but he'd probably still be okay with people arresting people with higher quantities or dealing or selling or whatever to be arrested, right? But man, for him to just cleanly and plainly state these very true facts, right? was such a crazy moment. Um, <clears throat> do you remember where you were when Obama said, uh, admitted that uh, there's a disproportionate amount of black and brown men in jail for weed? You don't forget a thing like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, actually, that's kind of perfect timing because we're going to take a little break. We're going to get paid to smoke weed. Beautiful. And uh, when we come back, I'm going to tell you about Obama's very first weed policy which was actually a policy for the Chum Gang. Mm. Oh, I think <laughs> I know what you're talking about. <laughs> All right, spark that shit up. I inhale. That was the point. Ready? Ready? Great moments in weed history. Smoke weedia. And we're back in. We're talking about Barack Obama. We're smoking weed. And we're having a good old fucking time. Bean, where were we? Uh, little technical correction. We're smoking Pacalolo. Pacalolo. On, on this episode. The best name for weed. Let's do it. All right. I'm so, stoked. Um, you know, we talked about Obama's uh, presidential and weed policies, mm-hmm. uh, but I promised you I was going to tell you about his very first weed policy. Ah, that's right. So this brings us back to the days of the Chum Gang. We are rechuminating. Mm-hmm. Uh, one concept that Barry, as he was known to them, mm-hmm. uh, Obama introduced to the Chum Gang was, quote, Total absorption. Yeah, known today as the hot box. Known today as the hot box, but he had his own, uh, you know, he's he's a forward thinker. Yeah, an he, he, He's like, yeah, you can hot box, but what's what's beyond that? He's aspirational in his hot boxery. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that means is total absorption meant that for the Chum Gang, penalties would be created and enforced for anyone who didn't hold in a hit a fine pakololo sufficiently long, uh. first offense resulted in getting skipped over the next time in rotation. Oh, interesting. So this is basically a very, very high-stakes game of Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I haven't it's, heard that term in a long I time. I know, right? This is, it's one of those like very old-school uh, things. It's a way to conserve weed, essentially, right? I mean, this is a funny thing. I don't think you and I, when we smoke weed, that we hold it in now. You know, we have enough weed. Thankfully, we're very lucky. And we have enough weed that, you know, you just kind of smoke it and, you know, hit it. And you're not standing there being like, I'm going to hold this. And, you know, like <laughs> suck every last bit of THC out of it. But back in the day, you had to do it. 
But it's so funny to me that he organized and politicized uh, <laughs> this uh, this old school game. Yeah, this is like the public option for weed. You know, there's, a, there's an individual mandate that you have to hold it in. He's trying to do it in, in their own interest. He just wants his homies to get as efficiently high yeah. based on the resources that they share collectively. Mm-hmm. You know, so this is basically socialized medicine. Yeah, it's for the greater good, you know, quite <laughs> literally. And he's innovated and figured out a way. He's like, why are we like, you know, like dragging our knuckles around and like, you know, like <laughs> clubbing each other to death when we should be utilizing our supply of cannabis to its absolute fullest. And he did it. He did it. But so this is not his only weed policy. Ah. Uh, And he was sort of like the mayor of the Chum gang. Okay, gotcha. So a natural leader, he just sort of rose to the top. A a natural leader who built consensus. You know, Mm. reading his book and this other book, that's the really, you know, there's people who are the natural leader because they're charismatic assholes yeah. And bullies. I mean, I'm not thinking of anybody specific. Right. I'm just saying there's a type of person uh, who, you know, appeals to sort of the worst in people to get them to do what he wants. Right. He's not that, you mm-hmm. know. Um, but he does have some other pretty specific weed policies. Let's uh, hear him. This is according to the book, The Story, that we talked about before. Mm-hmm. Along with total absorption, Barry popularized the concept of, quote, roof hits. Roof hits. So this does not perhaps mean hits on the rooftop. It does not. Mm-hmm. It does not. Any guesses what a roof hit might be? A roof hit. Hmm. What could that possibly be? It's a tough one. Does it have something to do with a hot box and the smoke collecting in the room? Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. So maybe it's like where you sit in hot box a room and then stand on a chair to stick your head in like the cloud. If the room's a car. Well, here we go. Okay, so, sure. so when the Chum gang were chuming in a car, all the windows had to be rolled up so no smoke blew out and went to waste. Mm-hmm. That's a conventional hot box. Hot box. Uh, when the pot was gone, they tilted their heads back and sucked in the last bit of smoke from the ceiling. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. So essentially that, the roof hit. Yeah. A ceiling hit, it probably should be called technically, but <laughs> nevertheless, a good idea. And once again... You know, he's all about the utilization, the conservation of the weed. Uh, He's got them just being more efficient potheads right here. Yeah. And then he's got one more uh, policy here. Uh, Barry also had a knack for interceptions. Ah, now this one I've heard before. Again, credit to the Jordan Peele depiction of this. Intercepted. Don't sleep on Barry O. Don't ever sleep on Barry O. Now, this is interesting. Okay, in every other situation, he is all about the democratization of cannabis among his friends. But this is a little bit different. Here, go ahead and describe it. Yeah, so uh, when a joint was making the rounds, Obama often elbowed his way in, out of turn, shouted, intercepted, and took an extra hit. Mm. No one seemed to mind. See, this is, that is very interesting in terms of, if you know, if you want to read into this a lot, right? Which I think is the purpose of our show. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, like, you know, in every other case, he's doing something for the greater good. In this situation, he's using his position of power 
to benefit himself, doing something that is essentially uh, would be categorized as a dick move done by almost anybody. But, you know, he knows that his charm and his leadership skills are going to make it okay for him to intercept. I would never do this. I would be mortified to like jump in and be like intercepted. I mean, there's some situations where ah, you're with homies screwing around or something. And nowadays, of course, we have thankfully again so much weed that it doesn't even matter. But you know, man, like that's a, that's an interesting thing, you know. Yeah, I mean, you got to be a pretty charming person to uh, you know to do. I think anybody could do that once. <laughs> yeah, right. But to have it be uh, a your thing. thing. To the do? other thing is, you know, they're like they're athletes, so you know he's playing with that idea and. He's a charming guy, and they've got a lot of weed. Sometimes, probably. I don't think you intercept when it's like eight people sharing the last joint you Ah, you but or is that exactly (laughs) when you intercept? You know what I mean? So let's get a little more into like the Chew Gang and what they're about. So aside from attending the same high school and getting blazed together... The main glue binding the Chum Gang together was pickup basketball, like I said. So they're they're getting high on playing ball. Uh, jokingly, they called themselves the Hack League because despite everybody being lit while they're playing, there were a lot of hard fouls that begat nonstop trash talking. Uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, Obama is basically like the mayor of the game. Anytime there's a dispute over a foul or out of bounds, everybody sort of like looks to him as the arbiter. See, again, more signs that he's kind of a natural leader. But, I mean, some of those calls might have leaned a little bit in Barry's favor. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? So, anyway, now I'll just say, I grew up in New Jersey in the 1980s. So, uh, this is what it was like for Obama in Hawaii in the 1970s. And prepare to be like... Uh A little jealous. After a long day of shooting hoops, the Chum Gang would climb into a VW bus they called the Chum Wagon, crank some Aerosmith or Stevie Wonder, and head to a waterfall with a deep basin of cool mountain runoff they could dive into. Wow, man. What an amazing day. The only thing I would change is the Aerosmith. (laughs) (laughs) But no, no, no. That sounds like such a good time, man. Incredible. What an upbringing. Those are those magic days and, and you know, just like how bonded this crew of people were. Um, or, you know, if they didn't go to the waterfall, uh, they just head to the beach and body surf. Right. Oh, man. Life in Hawaii. That sounds wonderful. And you remember when Obama would go on vacation to Hawaii and you'd see those yeah. pictures of him body surfing? Yeah, yeah, totally. He's, you know, getting back to that Chum vibe. And and God, remember, he took a fucking vacation. There's been a lot of criticism of the president taking this four-day holiday. What will it take to get the president actually to go back to his office and work? The world is going to hell and the president's out there playing golf. You know, a game of golf is really a lot more like a business meeting when you think about it. It's just not a thing that uh, (laughs) a president should be doing playing golf. Uh, (laughs) um, So Barry, as he was known at the time, he was already known for his unflappable nature and as a fierce competitive debater in high school. But he didn't really stand out in a school where it was like very strict academic standards. It's this upper crust school, preparing people Mm -hmm. to be, you know, the 1% of the future. He's a good student, but he's not the best student. He's on the debate team, but he's not all about it, you know? Right. He's really about this crew, you know, and playing ball and smoking weed. And he's 
having a pretty normal upbringing in terms of like not being somebody that you would say that guy's going to be president. Right, right, right. He's sort of he's low key right now. I mean, he's uh, he's the duckling of the gorgeous duck (laughs) that he is to become. Absolutely. And so, you know, aside from uh, riding the bench for the varsity basketball team, uh, he didn't go in for any extracurricular activities, including student government. Uh, But what he did do was he went to the library at this school and he read a shitload. And this is Mm. a—he talks about that a lot more in his memoir, uh, reading at the library than smoking weed. But that's very formative for him as well. Um, Mm -hmm. And he's starting to become the person that we know him as. Right. You know, he's not a frivolous young person. Uh, He has lots of fun. He has lots of friends. But there's a serious side to him and a questioning side and somebody who is, you know, obviously trying to figure out all of these complicated forces that uh, have shaped him. It's interesting to me. I I always, you know, I because I grew up in another country, you look at America in this different way. Right. And you see it for all its flaws and everything. Right. And all its, you know, benefits. And, you know, realizing that as an American, you have such a better life, you know what I mean, in this world. And when you've seen another country as a kid, you really, that, you know, that hits home. And it makes you so curious and, you know, so hopeful. And you go to the library and dig up every book about it and you read it. And then for others of us, you end up quitting the track team because you were smoking too much weed (laughs) and you end up playing drums and just riding a skateboard for the rest of the summer. That's where it took me. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) That's that's where I went uh, with that perspective. But, you know, it's it's really interesting to hear how this big nerd, you know, (laughs) became became the guy that we know him to be, you know? Yeah, so we're going to... I think we're getting into our our, our second J, and and that is going to take us uh, right out. Beautiful. Because uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna give the last word here to our friend Tom Topolinsky mm-hmm. of the Chum Gang, and this is how he kind of like summed it all up: what what the experience meant, and 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 what remains of being a Chum Gang member. Mm-hmm. Uh, Not the most famous one. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, And this is what Tom said. The Chum Gang was was all about adventure. Oh, yeah, totally. That's the name of the game. You know what I mean? Because it's it's less about the weed and it's more about the brotherhood and, you know, that sense of adventure that you have when you're a young person and you feel like the possibilities are endless, you know? Yeah. And so he says... We could turn anything into an event. Um... Whether it was small things like playing Nerf basketball, everything was animated, everything was funny, it was all about laughter. I mean, does that resonate with you as a oh, weed crew? Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's just like, man, you know that feeling you get at the end of the day when you've been with your friends all day and you're all like giggly slap happy and just every little thing that someone says becomes a joke in your head and you know, it's like, you almost, you just feel like drunk just on the laughter of that, you know what I mean? Of that experience or being in that, in that company, man. That's, that's such an awesome nostalgic feeling. Yeah. And just that feeling of like inside jokes and references mm-hmm. starting to pile up on themselves. Yeah. That, that's a weedy environment. Um, yeah. And, and then he says, there was no restrictions on what you could say or do. You're amongst family. You can cry if you want. You can laugh if you want. We can call each other's names. And um, Barry was very much a part of that 
uh, that feeling and that support group and and that kind of uh, anything goes mentality. Yeah, man, that's that's really great. That's like you know, there's movies made like Stand by Me or whatever. You know what I mean? It's like it's about that. You know, it's 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 all about the uh, the vibe that's created there. You're so pure in that state. You know what I mean? The world hasn't gotten you down yet. You know what I mean? And it's like, uh, it's so interesting to hear like about Obama's period like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or even when he says you could cry, it's like not always a thing in a male young peer group. Yeah, seriously. uh, To show that vulnerability. And they were open to that and they were there for each other. Um, and I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll bring it home with Tom's words. It was a beautiful thing. It was a lot of fun. And to this day, I am still very close with Chum Gang uh, many, many years later. Um, Barry's been a little harder to get a hold of. <laughs> but um, we were, I think, a very, very close bunch, and that allowed him to be himself. Um, and that was our main thing. You just, you just had to be yourself. There were no other rules. Man. That's a beautiful sentiment. And it definitely reinforces my fandom of Barack Obama. Despite, you know what I mean, like some of the things we've discussed, he really did show uh, an altruism, you know, that that really resonates with me. There's definitely a couple questions I have at the end of this, right, that perhaps are unanswerable. One is that in his college years, now— I know that in his college years, he hung out with a couple of Pakistani dudes. Pakistani people love telling this story because, you know, he came out (laughs) at some point being like, did you know Barack Obama, like, hung out with Pakistani guys? Like, he was part of a crew in New York who, in the movie Barry, which was directed by my friend Vikram Gandhi, uh, they show Barack Obama in this period when he's at Columbia University, right? And he's living with this guy. And I don't think he's shown smoking weed, but he lives with these party animals. And I can only guess that a guy who smokes weed in high school is also going to smoke weed in college. And, you know, he was in New York City. So I wonder if he smoked weed this time. Do you have any idea? He definitely didn't stop by then. Right. But it's not quite clear when he stopped. If? He stopped. If he stopped. And which brings me to my second question here, which is that do you think, based on everything you know, if you had to guess, that since Barack Obama stopped being president, that he has perhaps resumed smoking weed or maybe that he never stopped smoking weed the whole time? Well, I got to be honest. Um, I wasn't going to say anything because I felt like you'd uh, feel a little left out, but I, I, I... I seshed with Obama. <laughs> should I should I have done that earlier in the episode? Do you think that would have been like a like yeah, a get? He kind of buried the lead on that one. You know what? He he was gonna he was down to come on the show, and I was like, you know, we just got kind of a vibe between the two of us. Yeah, nah. You know what? He he would have messed up this vibe or whatever. Barry Barack. Uh, he said, call him either, you know, when we were sessioning right. together. <laughs> Why don't you come on the show and we'll do the college years? Uh, mm-hmm. But if you're going to come into our studio, it's like our home. Bring your own Pacalolo. <laughs> Bring your own Pacalolo and no interceptions. <laughs> no interceptions in here, man. We'll roll you a personal. That was an incredible story. Thank you so much, Bean. I definitely got to learn so much more about an icon, nay, a cannabis icon, 
Uh, and it's so cool to hear that Barack Obama is just a regular dude that loves kicking it with his boys, playing some ball, and smoking that sweet, sweet pakalolo. Amazing. Well, that's it for this episode of Great Moments in Weed History. We'll see you next time. Boom. Good one. I'd like to thank the Lolo. Great Moments in Weed History is a spoke media production. It's hosted by me, Abdullah Saeed, and David Beanenstock, a.k.a. Bean. We're produced by Brigham Mosley and Cody Hoffmachel with help from Reyes Mendoza and Kendall Lake. Special thanks to Gold Digger Studio. This episode was mixed by Jonathan Villalobos. Our executive producers are Aliyah Tavakolian and Keith Reynolds. Check out our show notes for more info on all the things we discussed on today's episode. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at GMIWH Podcast or shoot us an email at GMIWH Podcast at spokemedia.io. So that's like Hawaiian guitar stuff, right? Yeah, what's that little guitar called? It's ukulele. Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You could put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com, and that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.